if we can't get our readiness rates in peacetime, how are we going to get our readiness rates necessary if there was ever an actual conflict with the industrial base that we have? It is the week of New Year's, and welcome to episode 57 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today, NSI senior fellow Lester Munson will be doing a deep dive with Alex Gallo, Lindsey Rodman, and Moshe Schwartz, who are all featured in NSI's recent report, The U.S. Defense Industrial Base, Can It Compete in the Next Century?, which was produced in conjunction with DUCO. Alex Gallo is an NSI Visiting Fellow, the Executive Director of the Common Mission Project, and a Principal with BMNT. Prior to these roles, Alex served as a professional staff member with the House Armed Services Committee. Lindsay Rodman is the Executive Director of the Leadership Council for Women in National Security. Previously, Lindsay served as a political appointee in the Pentagon, first as the Special Assistant to the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness, and then as a Senior Advisor for International Humanitarian Policy in the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. Moshe Schwartz is an expert in acquisition and industrial-based policy. He has spent 14 years providing analysis and legislative support to Congress on acquisition policy and industrial-based issues, including as Executive Director of the 809 Panel on Streamlining Acquisitions. So the Duco NSI report broke down into four main sections, the threat posed by China, the U.S. military advantage under pressure, the vulnerabilities of the U.S. defense industrial base, and what the DOD must do to maintain the U.S. military advantage. Let's look at each one of these in turn. The clear finding from the report is that China is seen as both an economic and national security threat, with only Russia coming in as a slightly more of a national security threat. What are your thoughts on this double threat to America's national security policy? So I I think what's interesting here is the United States has had many adversaries in the past, but generally, particularly since World War II, from an economic perspective, the United States did not have any peers. What this challenge that China poses is not just the potential for near peer or peer or surpassing military capability, but also surpassing potentially economic capability, which means that this is not something where the United States can just dedicate and spend more money on defense as happened during the Cold War. But this is a multiple threat. It also means that China is playing on a whole nother field that, for example, Russia did or or some others. This is warfare in an economic realm as well. Maybe to um, add some uh, sort of nuance to that, our traditional means of dealing with a potential near-peer competitor or an adversary is through the deterrence model, where we're able to conceive of our adversary, historically Russia or the USSR, in easy black and white terms without having to also take into account things like needing a substantial trade relationship with them moving forward. So uh, our traditional language and black and white way of dealing with potential adversaries in the past doesn't translate very well into the future and our potential relationship with China, where we need to both embrace cooperation and collaboration, especially in multilateral forums, encourage them to play well in those forums, while also being somewhat on the defensive and cautious about the real damage that they could do to our country. Yeah, and I, I agree with all. And just to take that you know, a step 
further in, um, is, you know, this starts with how do we see the problem, right? And um, it is a complex relationship. And as noted here, there are areas where we'll have to cooperate along uh, with respect to North Korea and, and, and other issues. And then there's areas where we're competitors, adversaries, and even enemies in some cases. And so this is why it's important to create a common operating picture, a common set understanding around the nature of the problem. And we're starting to see that emerge. I think um, this uh, common understanding the problem between, particularly between the executive branch and the legislative branches. However, um, there are some nuances and differences. And I, but um, I do think in the next administration, there's going to have to be that partnership between the executive branch and the legislative branch to make any progress on this complex problem. And furthermore, there's going to have to be a dialogue with the American society and even a partnership with American society. And I know we're going to get onto that uh, here, but these are the key tasks, I think, in the next administration. So with, with so much agreement uh, between the experts on the, this double threat posed by China, is there a chance that the U.S. becomes too hawkish? In other words, we, we overreact to the perceived, I'm not saying it's not real, but the perceived threat here. Absolutely. There's that risk. However, I do think we're at a place where, um, I'll, I'll, I'll say it this way, I mean, in a way, we have to stop the bleeding. Uh, we are behind the power curve a bit with China in, these, in, in various forms, um, the national security forum, the economic forum, and so on. And there's no doubt that China is trying to figure out its future and, and, and such. So um, we, we need to catch up. And that risks um, you know, going too far. And so I do think after we... We have to think about this in phases. There is a, this catch-up period, so to speak, because I do think we're somewhat behind in certain cases. And, and then there's going to have to be this balance period and thinking about how do we do both of those things at the same time. And I think in that respect, um, thinking about the branches of the government, again, there's going to be tremendous nuance needed. And so that's, I think, going to be the role of the president and the executive branch. And then Congress needs to provide the president with the tools he or she needs to be able to um, carry out the policy. And so I do think Congress continuing to lean forward on, you know, providing those tools um, are, is going to be critical. Yeah, I think Alex is absolutely right about the complexity there and us needing a real whole of government approach to this question. Um, I'm also reacting to the word hawkish that you used in this context, because, of course, the, the fear with any of our adversaries is that we would escalate things to the point that we're actually talking about a real conflict environment. And, um, you know, even getting to the point that we're talking about being hawkish would really uh, I think ruffle some feathers in the international community. Some of the work that we have to do, there's there's agreement in experts perhaps in the United States. I don't see the same agreement internationally about China really posing a risk. And so uh, some of what we have to think about um, is not necessarily uh, talking about being sort of aggressive or hawkish necessarily, but being appropriately defensive and thinking about convincing our allies and other potential partners about the risk that China poses and just taking a prudent approach, not necessarily an aggressive or hawkish approach, but one that would protect us in the longer term. Well, let me push back a little bit on this question. And just, uh, you know, as someone who's you know been working in the political realm for only 30 years or so, it always seems to me that you, you've got to kind of make the case and overmake the case to the American people for a big change in policy. And I wasn't around for this, but I'm thinking back to World War II when there was clearly a threat from Germany and Japan, but we waited really for a full U.S. response uh, until after catastrophe struck, until after Pearl Harbor uh, and really a bunch of other uh, terrible things happened. Don't we also have to balance 
you know, the concerns of other folks in the world uh, that the U.S. might be overplaying it with the need to actually mobilize the American people to meet a challenge. Like we need to educate uh, and interface with and persuade American voters that this this is the right approach. So how do you how do you balance that mission also? And I couldn't agree more. I mean, um, you know, my point earlier is is I think there needs to be that dialogue with the American public. And I do start I do think it starts with there needs to be a bipartisan consensus on this issue. Uh, because you're right, there hasn't been an event that uh, would pull us in one direction or, or what have you, like Pearl Harbor, like 9-11 or something like that. And so um, I do think it starts with um, a, b- a bit of that bipartisan consensus. And coming around, you know, it starts with understanding what's the nature of the problem here that we're really trying to solve and, and whatever our key vital national security interests in this respect and having that dialogue with the American public. That will be ultimately insufficient, but it, it is a necessary step, I think, to getting to the place that you suggested, Wes. Let's talk about the second topic uh, in the paper, in the report, the U.S., the vulnerabilities of the U.S. defense industrial base. And there is clear concern about the U.S. government contracting with Chinese companies, but experts were split on how quickly the government can impose new restrictions on government contractors, for example, using Chinese telecommunications equipment. What are the barriers to implementing these restrictions and why is the government put it off for so long? So I think there are a number of uh, obstacles to implementing this quickly. So the first one is, let's take rare earth minerals, for example. So a substantial part of rare earth minerals come from China. It takes years to build up that industrial capacity, either domestically in the United States or in allied countries, to be able to produce the, the rare earth minerals we need in the volume that we need it. So to when we pursue efforts to diversify the, the supply chain so we don't rely on China, we want to do so in a way that doesn't cause us more harm. So what do you do in the meantime until that industrial base is built up in Australia or England or or the United States? It's just not as easy just switching it off. That's one question. Um, I'll raise two other points. The second one is, are we talking about all parts or do we, are we identifying certain parts? Like what about um, some commercial items where there isn't really a concern from a security perspective of being able to steal information or to exploit cybersecurity vulnerabilities? like a cable, like a dumb cable. What exactly are the definitions that we're using when we say we're not gonna use uh, Chinese equipment anymore? What equipment are we talking about? And then the third one, which is another challenge is, say we're buying an item from, from an ally. It could be from, from India, it could be from, from England, it could be from anywhere. It is difficult to put in place, and it just takes time to put in place that system to identify where printed circuit boards might be coming up from that are embedded into a product that are five or six or seven tiers down in the supply chain. So it takes time to figure that out. And do we need to, from a security perspective, say that commercial printed circuit boards can't be in any item? Those are some of the struggles. So what are the definition of the terms? How far do we have the visibility? And how long does it take to actually be able to shift and build the capacity to find alternative sources? Alex, Lindsay? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 mean, I agree with Moshe and I would just add, you know, obviously that one of the you know more pressing issues, at least that Department of Defense has been focusing on the Hill as well, is on this concept of trusted capital, um, whatever that means. And so that will also be a key feature of this, you know, um, somewhat this industrial or innovation based kind of issue. What what kind of companies will, is the DOD willing to work with and can we create some kind of um, incentive structure or trust trust based system for them to be able to innovate and you know, work with the DOD. And I do think this is an area of particular focus. You know, I know that Ellen Lord and others have pushed forward this in the, in the Trump administration. Again, it's got to be a key focus point in 
the Obama administration. And this gets onto that point we made earlier is that this gets to that dialogue with broader society. Um, you know, uh, it, it has to happen at every level uh, of analysis within society from um, labor all the way up to capital side. And um, I do think that, you know, that's gonna be a key task in the next administration is working with investors, uh, venture capitalists, company, emerging tech. So what are the what are the barriers to that right now? You know, the, I, I, I think uh, to, the, to the fact that there's 100,000 people at the Pentagon working on procurement, uh, it would seem like that's, that's either a huge challenge or a huge opportunity, right? Uh, it's, it's a massive bureaucracy. They're very good at buying things that are enormously complicated and enormously expensive and take decades to build. Presumably, there's a way to use some of those folks to buy, to be much more nimble and work with cutting edge technology in American companies to, to bring that kind of tech into our defense space. What are the barriers that, that you all saw in the survey? What's the, and what are steps that can be taken by policymakers? So some of the barriers are the actual regulations, like in intellectual property or, or in pricing. Those those are regulations that DOD abides by, which don't exist in the commercial market. So, for example, um, in the federal acquisition regulations, there are requirements on how you deal with intellectual property. In the commercial market, the companies can just negotiate that, right? And so a lot of companies are going to say, no, we don't want you to have that intellectual property DOD because we are concerned with what you're going to do it. Or they could say, no, we want a higher profit margin and that we're not willing to open everything up or, or follow those rules that you want. The other problem is how long it sometimes takes to contract. And when I say state contract, I'm talking about the entire acquisition process. If you think of the POM process of the budget process, you're thinking of your budget now to execute three years later, right? And if you're a company, you're not waiting three years for your good idea to be purchased and scaled up in any practical way. It's just not DOD is not built to be nimble. Now, is there a lot of progress being made? Yes, you have other transaction authorities. You have uh, a number of other middle uh, middle tier authorities that are being used, a number of other efforts that are being used. But it is just not as nimble as the commercial market, and it is encumbered by certain regulations like certified cost and pricing and commercial item rules that industry just doesn't have. And for many companies, particularly small ones, time is money. And another barrier there is, I think, on how the process of bringing in emerging technology and then the human capital side of that. And so let me just, you know, a small example here. Something I work on is a, a program called Hacking for Defense. This is a DOD sponsored program. It's authorized in the National Defense Authorization Act, Defense Approves Bill. So this is um, something the DOD has embraced. And really what they're do, what happens is we're bringing together government, industry, and academia to work on a problem. And so that's the human capital side. How do you get more of entrepreneurial kind of mindset and approach and um, more nimble uh, approaches like lean launchpad um, in terms of problem solving. The second part of that is how do you bring that merging tech in? Most of the time, the acquisition process incentivizes solutions in search of problems. I experienced that when I deployed to Iraq in combat. You know, I had a bunch of solutions, a lot, bunch of stuff provided to me that were all in search of a problem I didn't have in Iraq. Um, here, we, you know, I do think the DOD is starting to embrace this, but through like hacking for defense and other programs, you're starting with the problem. What is the nature of the warfighters problem up to the policy level problem? And then you connect in technology towards that. What do you guys think of uh, kind of the emerging view that uh, Xi Jinping in China has really cracked down on entrepreneurship and the private sector and uh, kind of these much more business oriented approaches to the economy and really brought back the old Mao centralized government approach and really cracking down on companies that aren't 
collaborating directly with the government. He's empowering state-owned enterprises. It's It sure seems like there's a move in China that's going to be ultimately very limiting for their ambitions, that they're not going to be able to harness creativity and ingenuity in the way the American economy has been, you know, frankly, so good at for so long. Not that we're perfect or anything, but boy, if you wanted a, a free field to run on, the U.S. provides a pretty good one. So what's what, what do you guys think of that kind of emerging thought that that China may, you know, in the in the very long run, uh, I'm not saying it's not a challenge now or in the medium term, but in the long run is not quite as much of a challenge as we may have originally thought. I will say one thing and then turn it over to other people, but um, I, I recall reading some point this year that the number of scientific papers with authors coming out of China surpassed the United States, I believe this year. So while you know, there's a lot of credence perhaps to what you're saying. It is questionable for how long that advantage will actually uh, exist. And, and, you know, I'm sure Alex and Lindsay have more insight than I do on this. Yeah, um, I think there is much more risk associated with underestimating your adversary or potential adversary than there is in overestimating their capabilities. So I'd always want to be on the right side of that ledger. China is also much better at playing the long game than we are. So <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily count on our ability to wait them out on that front. Um, there's also advantages to their approach, ones that I would never advocate for us because I, I think that we deeply believe in our system. But what what he's able to do is leverage their industry in service of national priorities in a way that we'll never be able to do in the United States because our, you know, we have free capitalism and industry is not for the purpose of national priorities. Industry is for the purpose of, you know, free capitalism and entrepreneurship and the needs of the market. Uh, and so at least in the short and medium term, there are actual real notable advantages to the way that he's operating. Um, one example is in the way that China is starting to play in the Arctic. Operating in the Arctic is not easily supportable financially currently. It's too expensive. Anyone who's trying to operate in that region is developing capability for the long term. So if you're just depending on market forces to enable your investment in developing those capabilities, you're not going to get there right now. But if you want 20, 30 years from now to be leading in the Arctic, then you need to be thinking about it now. And China is really at the forefront of that because of the way that they're able to leverage their national industry in support of their national priorities. I could just back clean up on that question. I, I mean, Les, I think it's a really interesting you know, point. And uh, I think it's interesting because, um, you know, it, it shows that she is also trying to figure out what the right future is um, for him and uh, and, I, and and China and um, just as we are. And so that's also a reminder is that we shouldn't underestimate him, but we're all, we're both kind of trying to figure out our futures. And um, he's making certain assumptions that I hope he goes down the road that you're talking about, because I do think um, that actually would be, uh, uh, in the short run, it might, it might be advantage as noted here because of the ability to structure um, the economy and stuff and, and, and push into different areas. But I don't think it's a, it's a good long game, um, is my guess. I do think we ultimately um, prevail in that kind of contest but, um, or competition. But, you know, it's interesting here in the United States, let me just flip it back the other way. There's been conversations about industrial policy in the United States vis-a-vis -vis China. So I think we're both wrestling, both sides, so to speak, are wrestling with this question. What's the right way to compete in this emerging context? A good segue to the third key finding in the report, uh, that the, the industrial base of the United States is vulnerable. Of course, we spend by far the most money on defense in the world. So how is it that we're falling behind in this area? I think there are a couple of things. One is when you look at the defense budget, um, the question is, 
first a parity of cost, right? Um, how much are we paying for our one uniform uh, personnel as opposed to what China is paying? You know, we have a lot of um, you know add-ons, which are policy decisions. I'm not criticizing or, or at all. But, you know, we spend over a billion dollars in the commissary system, right? We have a health care for virtual life. Um, you know, we have the, the pensions. That has to be taken into account. Another thing is the United States has assumed a burden globally. You know, we have a fleet guaranteeing the free flow of oil in the Persian Gulf, right? There are other issues at play here. Um, so when you look at the price, then we also haven't exactly... You'd have to what what Chinese budget are you comparing, for example, right? The official budget, or is there more money that's being spent? So when you take into those fact those issues, I think it's uh, it's it's hard to just make an apples to apples comparison of budgets. The other thing I'd mention about the defense budget. So I'm uh, you know this is coming from someone who used to work on the House Armed Services Committee, as my colleagues know. You know, so um, we were always very concerned about the top line number on the defense budget and. Really, there are two aspects to that. Um, first is, um, you know, the role of the United States in the world is much different than China's role, and and so that has to be factored in. And there's and and then yes, there's no doubt that some of the policy decisions we've made, you know, enlarges the tail or the cost of per soldier, per airman, et cetera, um, of the DoD. So that's a factor here. Um, but uh, the other factor is politics. Um, and what I what I'm but what I'm going to make a different point about politics is that. Um, there is, you know, this is viewed as zero sum. So the second that you cut back on the budget that gives on the DOD's top line, that gives, um, you know, um, energy to those who want to continue to cut, cut, cut. And so there is a view on the Hill that um, if you come back, you know, backpedal on the budget top line, that it, it's a slippery slope. And so I do think as the, um, the politics of this will be continue to be um, our services committees and others who are Hawks, I'll say that, kind of use that term again, you know, we'll continue to try to push up that top line. And I do think that's where the momentum is for a number of different reasons. Um, and they don't want to give ground or space to those who want to cut back in the budget. I do think this is an interesting, this will be an interesting issue in the next administration. Um, I think it's unclear um, because it's, there's lack of clarity, both in the, you know, just their overall view on China and what, what how they will view the, the threat. Um, there's an equivalent view on what the how they view the defense budget and the defense top line, and um, that will be an interesting debate to to have. And going back to the Duco report, I think um, oftentimes we do end up taking this conversation about the defense industrial base or the amount that we spend on procurement, and then immediately start talking about the top line and the entire budget and everything else that might be subsumed in it. The real key finding in the report was that the defense industrial base is vulnerable. And the way that if you look at the questions and the uh, responses, the way that they sort of teased out was that the report establishes that this group of defense experts that we're all honored to be among um, felt that the U.S. industrial base is no longer able to be counted on to source everything that we need on the procurement and acquisition side. Um, so that's really what the finding is. And there's sort of you could put all the money you want into the defense budget if we as a nation don't have the industrial base that we need to draw upon it, then we're going to need to go outside of the United States, which creates some vulnerability. There's a question about how much how much vulnerability that is and whether you are okay with that vulnerability, um, uh, but that creates some vulnerability. And uh, I think there's also increasing appetite for relying on some of our partners and allies in this space and understanding that the US industrial base may be 
vulnerable insofar as we can't do it all by ourselves, but we don't want to necessarily be doing it all by ourselves, or maybe we're okay with that to some degree. Um, so it's, uh, I would commend the report to folks because I think that there is more information there to be dug into and to sort of get, get a little bit below that top line and start understanding really what these experts were opining about and what uh, inferences can be drawn from that. And just to add to that, um, dealing with our industrial base, so, you know, um, Mattis, when you're Secretary of Defense, set forth readiness rates, right? Readiness rates for, for our, our fighters, for example. And we haven't been able to meet those readiness rates that were put forth. And some of the reasons GAO just did a report a few months ago, um, they talked about a shortage of spare parts. If we can't get our readiness rates in peacetime, how are we going to get our readiness rates necessary if there was ever an actual conflict with the industrial base that we have? And when we have one point of failure of one provider supplying a part or a piece or a service, that causes a lot of stress. And, and that is a problem. And so the lack of the robustness and the resiliency of an industrial base that is barely keeping up with readiness in peacetime um, should be a wake-up call. So this is a good uh, segue to the final finding in the report on maintaining U.S. military advantage. A strong majority of respondents thought it was in defense's best interest to increase competition in the manufacturing base. We've touched on this a little bit, but what would that look like in practice? That is a Great question. Um, and, and I think that's one of the things that everyone struggles with is everyone, you know, you can read a lot of reports and everyone says we need more competition. The challenge is how do you get more competition? Let me go back to um, the federal acquisition regulations, right? So what is the purpose of the federal acquisition regulation? And it says it, right? Right up in front in the introduction, it says there are three goals of the federal acquisition regulation, or a few goals of federal acquisition regulations, sorry, for to get the um, what we need, right, at a good price, when we need it, and to fulfill public policy objectives, right? And we have four different goals there, and they compete with each other very often, and they're very frequently um, in conflict. And so when you go in one direction, it's hard to go in, in, in to get the other thing that you want. So what I mean by that is, you know, we say we want competition, but we have set-asides, right? We say we want competition, which again, is, is a very good thing, but then we'll have TINA, you know, Truth and Negotiation Act, where we're capping, where we're asking for certified costs so we can cap prices where the, you know, DODIG, the Inspector General will say more than 15% profit is unreasonable. I'm pretty sure when I go to Baskin Robbins, I'm paying more than 15% for my ice cream as profit, right? But for a highly engineered intellectual property parts, you can't charge more profit than an ice cream store can charge, right? And so there are barriers and it, it's very difficult to accomplish all of these public policy goals and lethality and cost and timeliness goals at the same time, right? And I think that's what people are struggling with is how do you in fact do that? Because this isn't a free market in defense, right? There's a limited number of companies that can do things and there are regulations that limit the suppliers. And I think a lot of companies are would love to work with the government, and some do, and some can make a fair, you know, a nice profit. But others are like between manufacturing. I can make more money elsewhere with less of the of the headache. <laughs> they definitely say that. I've, I've, in my kind of current work, I see that all the time. There's a lot of companies that want to work with the government, but then they say, you know, this is too much time, headache, and so on, and I can make more money elsewhere. That said, I just want to return to a point. Um, I agree with your point, Moshe, about. Um, you know, the laws and the FAR and, and all the regulatory infrastructure we put around this, um, that is not a, necessarily a free market. Another feature of it is, I, I'm not totally convinced DOD, the, we, the, the macro we work for defense, actually understand and know what our needs are. And again, it goes back to my point about understanding the various problems. I can't tell you how many times um, through the, the work that I do that we're going out and we're sourcing warfighter problems and and all the way up to operational and strategic level problems that are totally unaddressed. And I think if 
and and they're really you know complex and and that need is is real and valid and can be validated um through a process and um and i think it would increase competition because i do think that the traditional folks who work in uh, the traditional primes and others who work in defense can't sort uh, sorry us provide solutions to all those needs and so if we had a better way to source all the needs within the department of defense um i think actually that could be a way to increase competition because there's no the current entities can't uh, provide solutions, I think, to those always. You know, competition is a very powerful positive force. Um, but uh, Dave Packard, when he was Deputy Secretary of Defense, and when he wrote, you know, the seminal 1986 report on acquisition reform, and, and he was a, a supporter of competition, he also said competition for competition's sake makes no sense. That's the exact quote from the report. Competition for competition's sake makes no sense. I think we sometimes pursue policies in a knee-jerk response for the sake of pursuing them instead of having um, a nuanced approach of when it makes sense and when it doesn't make sense. And you see a lot of that in acquisitions regulations where you have these blanket rules, right? If I were to throw out a single mantra um, to improve defense acquisition, I'll actually throw out two. The first one is the mantra, fewer regulations, more consistently enforced by a workforce that is empowered to actually make decisions. Right. I think that would go a long way. Right. So fewer regulations, because we have regulations for things that date back, you know, decades and decades that just don't make any sense anymore. And they're conflicting um, and, and enforcing all of them. There's very inconsistent enforcement by people that can actually make decisions. And then the other thing I would say is if I were to say, what's the one thing that would improve acquisition the most? It's workforce, empowering the workforce and giving them the authority to make good decisions. Um, and giving them the tools that they need to make those good decisions. Grant, last question to you, buddy. Yeah, I, I actually want to follow up on what Moshe was just saying. I'd love to hear from uh, Lindsay and Alex. If you are uh, Lloyd Austin and you are about to take the the helm of the world's largest bureaucracy, what would you do uh, for a quick win on making the acquisitions process a little bit better? Um, I, I'll just jump in on that uh, at the front. So first, um, there's no way I'll ever be uh, General Austin because um, I don't have <laughs> the experience and and uh, austere a career that he's had. But um, but if I you know could try to um, you know answer that question, I think the one single thing I would do, and it, it gets back to Moshe's point about the human capital side of the workforce. I actually think that um, they may not have all the tools they need. And, and and the specific tool that I think they need is an entrepreneurial mindset. I don't think they're equipped to assess risk. And um, I think, you know, having a uh, kind of mid-career level or, um, or higher program to think of, to be able to think more entrepreneurially, to be introduced to concepts like Lean Launchpad and others, um, I think that would help tremendously with the workforce and be able to make those decisions and, and the mantra that I fully agree with with Moshe. Uh, so my answer will sound, I think, similar. Um, and so it's complementary, but not quite exactly the same, which is it's a question about culture. So I think Moshe is exactly right that in the Department of Defense, a lot the sort of institutional bureaucratic culture works to the advantage of a large bureaucracy much of the time. But then you get the flip side, which is the giant bureaucracy that is inherently risk averse. And when we're talking about solving some of these specific problems, those uh, default mindsets end up working counterproductively to your ultimate goals. Um, but I would be careful uh, because I think that there is a lot that is worth improving in the acquisition space, just as there is throughout the department. And for uh, hopefully future Secretary Austin, 
um, I would try to dig a little bit deeper. So, um, you know, in digging through this report, uh, you have a hundred defense experts who are saying things like, um, uh, there is a broad consensus that the Department of Defense budget requirements and contracting processes are unnecessarily burdensome and too bureaucratic. Um, sure. And so you, yes, of course, uh, you know, we were speaking earlier about how like that sort of laugh line, DOD is a giant bureaucracy. Of course it is. And defense experts will tell you DOD is a giant bureaucracy. Um, but you don't need DOD experts to tell you that DOD is a giant bureaucracy. Uh, what you need is some nuanced problem solving and trying to figure out as the symbolic leader of the organization, as the Secretary of Defense, how you create a culturally permissive environment for people to do what needs to be done that might sometimes feel culturally different than what a giant bureaucracy normally lends itself towards. Okay, Alex, Lindsay, Moshe, uh, great job. Terrific conversation. I feel like we could do this for a couple of hours. Uh, we'll have to do it again next year. Thanks a lot. It was really terrific. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at MasonNatSec. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for engineering, Michelle Story for research assistance, and Lester Munson for hosting. And Grant Haver for producing and directing. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.